0: Good morning, everybody, so glad that you're here today, glad to have you with us. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34, Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one as we walk through the scriptures. There's some in the back. Uh, right on these stands back here. Um, if you don't have one, uh, you wanna grab one so that you can look at the scriptures with us, which is what, what we're gonna be doing now is looking at, at the Bible. Um, and as we seek to understand our Lord's words, Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through, through 34. And before we look to the passage that God has given us for today, Let's recite our memory verse for this month as we um, have been memorizing a verse per month as a church family, and this one is rather short, so hopefully you've gotten, you've gotten it down by now and you can say it without looking. Um, you ready? And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Can you try it again? And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, verse 10. There it is for you on the screen. And uh, if you haven't been here, you can go back to listen to the past couple of weeks. But I've said most of, of what I thought was necessary or helpful to say about this particular verse in the past two weeks. Really, um, if you think about it, this was for a people, this particular verse, for a people who thought that they had sinned themselves out of grace. For a people who thought that they had sinned themselves out of grace. And uh, so many years, so many sins, such discipline from the Lord, so much blindness, so many consequences of their sin, so many years of unfulfilled resolves, foregoing their relationship with God, evil leadership and influence, regret of what could have been theirs if they would have obeyed, wondering if they still have a future, wondering if they still have a hope, Regret, because what God called them to was clean and holy and joyful and satisfying and fruitful life in God. And the possibility of them being without future hope was devastating for them. And they wondered if their fate was sealed. They had fears, slavery of sin, disobedience, desiring sin more than they were desiring God. And this was felt by by his people, and I want to show you the weight of this. I want to show you the weight of this verse um, to help us to understand it for for a little while before we get into our text. If you can, keep your finger in Luke twelve or something there, and then move over to Second Chronicles chapter thirty six. Second Chronicles chapter thirty six. First and Second Kings. First and Second. Chronicles. So, Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-six. I was convinced when I was writing this week that we were just going to spend about thirty seconds on this verse, and uh, the Lord had other plans. So, we're going to spend a, a little bit on it. So, Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-six. I want to show you the weight. This This is at the end of 2 Chronicles. This is right before the book of Ezra, okay? This is right before the book of Ezra. I told you that uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are consecutive in regards to timeline, in regards to chronology. They're right after each other, Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, Ezra is where the people of God who in their sin and slavery are brought back God's city. They're able to rebuild the temple and to worship again. And uh, 2 Chronicles is is consecutive in its timeline with Ezra as well, because what you're going to see is at the end of 2 Chronicles, it's almost verbatim what's in the beginning of Ezra. So 2 Chronicles kind of ends on this hope. And the beginning of Ezra starts with that very same hope and then continues the story. But I want you to first, before we get to the hope, I want you to see the weight of the sin, why these people were brought into slavery through the, the conquering of the Babylonians, okay? Just, let's just look at it. We're gonna spend a little bit on this. Second Chronicles chapter 36, starting in verse one. I wanna help you here. The people of the land, notice their sin, the evil, the sin. The people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in place in Babylon in this in his place in Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiakim. And His son reigned in his place. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and 10 days in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In the spring of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord and made his brother Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah, the prophet, who, by the way, at this time, Jeremiah was speaking and telling Israel exactly what was to happen. Exactly. If you guys disobey here, you're going to end up in destruction, and you're going to end up in discipline, and you're going to be subject to the other nations. I mean, there was no ambiguity. hes I'm going to show you in a little bit. He told them exactly, just like the word of God tells us exactly. It, there, there will be a consequence for sin, and sometimes we treat it a little bit mystical, like, I wonder what happened. The word of God told you exactly what was gonna happen, right? So the word of God was, was being clear through Jeremiah, the prophet, to the people of Israel about what would happen if they continued on in, in their sin, but they paid no attention to him. Continue on midway through verse 12. Who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his, his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he made holy in Jerusalem." The Lord, the God of their father, sent persistently to them, to, to, by, to them by his messengers. Those were, were the prophets. Prophets continued to come over and over again to speak what they heard from God to God's people, which was return to the Lord, return to the Lord, return to the Lord, right? And because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets. That's why those who who are sharing the word of God, expect to be rejected just like the prophets were by people who desire to have their sin more than they desire to have God. That's what's happening here. Until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on the young man uh, or virgin or old man or aged, he gave them all into his hands and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king of his, of his princes and all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. That's why in Ezra, the house of God is rebuilt. And that's why in Nehemiah, the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt because here they are, they're broken down, right? Right? And he burned all its places with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah... Until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbaths to fulfill 70 years. So all these years, they, every seven years, there was the called to be a one-year Sabbath of the land. And, they, and they, every year, they, they, uh, every Sabbath year, which was every seven years, they disregarded it, meaning they did this for for 490 years because it took 70 years of every year being a Sabbath where there was no one on the land in order to produce recompense for the 70 Sabbaths that were, that were ignored. Does it make sense? You got to have a little bit of math to be in here, I guess. Um, so verse 22, now check out, there's, a, there's hope here at the end. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stood up the spirit, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea or Judah, I'm sorry, whoever is among you of all of his people, may the Lord, his God be with him and let him go up. And if you look at the beginning of Ezra in the first year of Cyrus the king, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah to be fulfilled, stirred up in the Cyrus the king of Persia so that he might make a proclamation and he let these people go back up to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. So this is the story here. They were paying for their sin because their sin was great under the Babylonian um, empire. And it took... Seventy years, seventy years of of all of Jerusalem having nobody on it for the land, in a sense, it wasn't the, the main reason, but they dis, they disregarded the Lord's Sabbaths as one of their major sins, and it took 70 years straight of every year the land having its Sabbath, nobody on it, in order to make up for the 70 Sabbaths, which was once every seven, every seven years, so four hundred and ninety. 490 years, their sin was great. Their sin was great. And God's grace was great. Remember I told you the context of our memory verse. Ezra the priest read the book of the law. They wept in remembrance of their sin and God was offering them forgiveness. And I wanna show you how great their sin was. Lest you think you've sinned yourself out of grace. Because we see here that God is bringing restoration, discipline and then restoration. And I wanna make this even more clear for you. And the Sabbaths in verse 21, as I mentioned, Leviticus 25 tells us about, about the, uh, the Sabbaths once every seven years. There were to be no work on the land because they were to trust God that seventh year. It would to be almost like a reset. Listen now, there would be almost like a reset like a reset, to trust God, to worship, to break the cycle of any idolatry that's accumulated over six or years or so, and to have self as the center and to make possessions the center of the life and to have a heart that forgets God every seventh year that God would reset them. And, and, and Jeremiah told them exactly, that was given in Leviticus 25, one through seven. You can read that later if you'd like. But Jeremiah, again, told them exactly what was going to happen if they Break it so you can read it on the screen. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold. I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. I mean, he told them exactly what was going to happen. But Nebuchadnezzar was going to come up. Nebuchadnezzar started reigning in 605 B.C., and uh, they went into, uh, they, that's when their captivity started. And, and so, I mean, he literally told them exactly what was about to happen. Verse 10, moreover, I will banish from them the voice of, of myrrh and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the grinding of the millstone and the light of the lamp. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. So he was gonna be held accountable too. And the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon the land all the words I have uttered against it, everything written in the book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense. There it is. He's gonna make up for all the years that they disregarded the Sabbath, And uh, he's gonna do it with, with his 70 years. Now, I wanna tell you this. This was not a surprise. By the way, it's not a surprise when our lives face the consequences of our sin. God has told us clearly in his word, his book, what will happen if we persist in our sin. And so it shouldn't be a surprise. It wasn't a surprise for them but I also want to tell you, I want to show you the depths of their sin and the depths of hope that you have. Now, listen, every seventh year, there was, there was to be a Sabbath on the land. They broke it. At the end of this, this, this account in Second Chronicles, 70 years every day enjoying the Sabbath to make up for 70 Sabbaths. Seven representing completeness. Seven representing completeness, original commands. Seventh, every seventh year, they were to completely rest on God, and they disobeyed this for 70 years. Seven times 70. Every seventh year, seven years times 70 years, times 70 Sabbaths. Their sin was, this is, their sin against God was complete. I mean, it was, it was complete. This is to show the utter completeness of their sin against God. And yet, it's to show the utter completeness of God's forgiveness for them in making up these seven these 70 years of Sabbath. In Matthew 18, 21 through 22, we get an idea. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I will forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. The idea here is seven in the scriptures is used to often connote completeness. And so all this to say that their sin was completely an offense towards God, Complete payment was made by God in his judgment, and then complete forgiveness was offered to the people. And I want to encourage you listen, there's hope. There's hope for you. If you feel as if your sin is complete in its offense towards God, if you feel as if you're not sure if God can make recompense. For your complete sin against him, he has made complete recompense through the gospel, through Christ. He has made up for, by punishing his own son, all of your years of disobedience. And now he offers to you complete forgiveness before him through Christ. And this is, this is I mean, we're just scratching the surface of the time that you could spend on this. I hope it's clear to you just to see the weight of sin, God's complete work in in making up for the years of sin and then the complete forgiveness that's offered to them here now moving into Ezra. So through the gospel, if you will confess your sins, if you will ask for cleansing, even though your sin feels complete, God has already made complete payment. To give you complete forgiveness if you would trust in christ and the gospel and there is future blessing for you offer in its fullness through christ and the gospel so i know one thing led to another when i was studying this uh ezra passage um but now we got to get into our main text okay so luke chapter 12 verses 22 through 34 we preach two sermons here every week Okay, Luke 12, 22 through, through 34. It says this. This is our text that God's given us for today. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For the life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what we're seeing here is, and as we discovered last week, Jesus is training his disciples to pursue God and not greed, and then giving them the reasons not to worry about provisions while doing so. So, pursuing God and not greed, and the reasons not to worry about provisions while doing so. That's the main point of the section. The doctrines that are being made known here the primacy of Christ in the life of the believer, and the provision of God in the life of the believer. The primacy of Christ in the life of the believer, and the provision of God in the life of the believer. So Jesus is training. He's making his disciples to be trained in God being their first priority, the glory of God being their first priority, the gospel being their first priority. Life is found, in, and forgiveness is found, and, and worship happens. And the kingdom is advanced when God is the first priority, not greed or not covetousness as your first priority as, or as a priority at all, all forms of it. It can involve money or materials of every kind, being primarily concerned with or focused on this earthly life, wealth, belongings as your first priority. It makes you anxious, you're never settled, it's never enough, makes you discontent, you're always worried, you're always wanting more, you're distracted, it takes your thinking, your time, your serving, it's blinding you to the reality of who God is. You feel nothing, you feel spiritually numb because you're, there's no, no wonder you're spiritually numb. You're nibbling all day on something less than God. And no wonder you're full and you don't need God. If you remove that and you stop nibbling, you will be hungry and you will be hungry for God. And so life is about God and Christ and eternal life. And he has joy for you to be found in that. And I know you might not believe that, but if you just give it a try, remove that. Those, those things that are in the place, and then pursue him and you will have joy unending. His word says so. And so this is how true disciples are supposed to live. This is what Jesus is saying. These are, this is how true disciples are pro- supposed to live. The primacy of Christ and the gospel and then the provision of God, right? And, and first here, he's got to tell them, don't worry about the world. That's what he's training them in. Don't worry about the world, the primacy of Christ and the, and the kingdom of, of God and the provisions that God provides. And then you know what he's gonna do in the next section in verse 35? He's gonna say, okay, now what does it look like to have God as your first priority, the primacy of Christ in your life? Well, I'll tell you what it looks like. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning, right? He, like you're waiting for your master. I mean, he's just gonna continue telling us what this looks like to have pursuing God as your priority, the primacy of Christ and not greed. He's gonna tell us exactly what it looks like. And so greed, it blinds the heart. It blinds the heart. At the end of the section, he, he says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is in accumulating possessions or wealth, your heart will, will worship those things. It will gravitate, it will love, it, it will be consumed with greed, this life thinking where life is found, that you're mainly concerned about this life and not eternity. You're anxious, prioritizing, worrying, seeking, possessions, food, clothing, wealth, money, storehouses, barns, safety, security, satisfaction. This is what, this is especially the culture that we live in, right? And our hearts love these things. They trust in these things. They serve these things. They're anxious for these things. They're consumed with these things. We prioritize these things rather than Christ, who gives salvation, who gives the gospel, who saves us, who satisfies us, who sanctifies us for all of eternity. And this is important. This is a matter of glory, You might think, yeah, yeah, I know. This is what we hear in church all the time, right? God first, God first, not money, not money. Okay, okay, I'll figure it out. Listen, do you know that this is a matter of glory? This is a matter of God's glory. It's a matter of, of fear. Verse 32, it says this, this is a matter of fear. Why does this stuff happen? It's a matter of fear. Verse 32, fear not, little flock. So why do we pursue greed and not God? Fear. This is a matter of faith. Verse 28, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you of you of little faith? Why do you pursue greed and not God? Little faith. This is a matter of worldliness. Verse 30, it says this, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. It's a matter of fear. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of worldliness. It's a matter of giving to the kingdom. Verse 32 or verse 33 says this, sell your possessions and give to the needy. This is a a matter of treasuring eternity over this life. Verse 34 says, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. This is a matter of idolatry. Verse 34, your heart will be towards these things if we, if we serve them. It distracts us, it blinds us, and it chokes out our faith. And we've, Jesus has already warned about this to the disciples. Remember before he sent them out, he said this, watch this. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He's sending out his disciples and he says this, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bags. Meaning don't be concerned primarily with how you're gonna provide for yourself. Go pursue the mission. This is what he told them originally. So he's telling them this again. Trust God with your lives Devote your life here on earth to the service of Christ. So we saw that God said he was gonna provide, and now he's telling us why for another reason. You don't have to worry as you're on mission, as you live for God, as you pursue Christ primarily. Why? And today he's gonna tell us it's because your life is important to God, okay? This is this, this week, this reason today, because your life is important to God, which is why you don't have to worry, why you can pursue God, Christ, the gospel, and not greed, because your life is important to God and he will provide. This is what Jesus is getting at here, similar to to what we've seen um, in other places. If you look at Romans 8, uh, 32, I wanna just show you this. Look at this, this is what he's getting at here. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also great with him graciously give us all things? He's moving again with the Jewish form of argument from the greater to the lesser, right? This, this, is where, this, is, this is what I'll do for you. I gave you my son. How will I not also provide for you financially? You might not have everything you want because that's what's going on in your mind right now. Yeah, I know that you say that, but he won't really provide that. Well, you're not gonna die, that's the point, until he decides to take your life. You might not get all the trinkets, right? But he's got a plan for your life. He's gonna use you to know him and to make him known, and until that plan is done for your life, you're gonna stay here on earth. And then when you're done with that plan, he's gonna take your life. That's how it's gonna work, right? Like, I have, I have numbered your days, You're gonna know me and make me known. And then when that's done, I'll take your life. And every day until I plan to take your life, you will be provided for. That's the idea. I care about your life, right? So let's move into the division of the matter, the the, making the doctrine or the theme or the truth or the main point proposition clear by the text. So give you the headings of what we're gonna see, and then we're just gonna take them one at a time, okay? And it's not hard to see here, you'll see it. We're gonna see three things today. Number one, we're gonna see the powerlessness of prioritizing possessions. The powerlessness of prioritizing possessions. And then it's gonna build on itself. Number two, therefore, what we're gonna see is the pointlessness of prioritizing possessions. And then number three, we're gonna, he's gonna close with the importance of your life to, to God. Powerlessness of prioritizing possessions, pointlessness of prioritizing possessions and the importance of your life. This is a progre- it's a progression. It builds on itself in this argument. Jesus is making a second argument. The first time he said, don't be anxious about this life, right? Your life is about more and I'm gonna take care of you. Now he's saying again, don't worry about this life. Your life is about more. I'm gonna take care of you. But he gives some different reasons. Here's a diff- these are different, this is a different argument. So one at a time, as Jesus builds this case, number one, the powerlessness of prioritizing possessions. This is why he's telling you to pursue God, not greed, and to trust him along the way. Verse 25, it says this, chapter 12, verse 25. And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of, of life. Pretty easy verse, huh? Right? What is he saying here? He's saying, how much can prioritizing this life or possessions really do for you? How much can it really do for you? Can it give you more life? Even if you accumulate accumulate because you're anxious, you're worried, you're concerned, you're prioritizing, you're pursuing, you're storing up, is it able to add any time to your life? Right? The idea here is you're not able to control the length of your life or or the identity of it, really. And so the question here is, because oftentimes this passage is taken in light of just anxiety, right? We'll just talk about this passage in light of anxiety. And you can do that, that's okay. But we often separate the passage from the context of what it's talking about. still applicable in that way, but what is it particularly talking about being anxious about? It's the context is being anxious about material provisions, material provisions, right? The idea here is if, you, if, we, if we go, if we kind of build from, from where we were. Verse 22 through 24. Remember the main point? Life is about more. The progression that led up to that, listen, spiritual hypocrisy. Beware of it. Why? God's the judge. Greed. Beware of it. The abundance of possessions. Why? Eternal life isn't found there and it doesn't make you rich before God. Christ and the gospel does. We moved into this passage. Therefore, With this in mind, don't prioritize or be mainly concerned about this life. Don't be anxious and worry about it. Why? For, verse 23, it says, the reason, life is about more than providing for your life. Right? And you shouldn't be your main priority. It's about more than providing for your body. Those aren't the ends. Christ's kingdom is the end. It's the goal. And disciple, he said this, you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. Why? Because God will provide everything you need because you are valuable to him. And so often we don't do that. We don't trust that. We prioritize this life because we treasure it and we trust it. We can't even figure out what it would look like to make God first. Our hearts have grown so cold. We need to to treasure Christ. And we need to trust in Christ. Christ not the created things, right? We value it, these things. Instead of valuing Christ and salvation and his kingdom, he offers to make us like him, to have a heavenly reward. You're valuable to him. You will have what you need. You may be disappointed sometimes because you don't have the latest trinket or you can't do this or that to your house or you don't have the bank account that feels super secure, you might be disappointed in that sometimes, right? But God will be purifying you in those times to show you that he's all you need and so that you trust in him and so that he doesn't let the preciousness of possessions become your treasure, right? Sometimes this, this inhibits our giving too, by the way. This is why we don't give in all reality. We treasure in our, in our money and we trust We trust it. We treasure it and we trust it. We don't wanna release it. If we prioritize Christ and the kingdom of the gospel, we would, and this is silly. Once again, life is about more and God will provide. Don't be deceived. Success and accumulating wealth and possessions, right? It's not satisfying and it can't save you. We treasure it, we trust it because we want it to be satisfying and we want it to save and it can't do any of that right? And also I want to make mention, don't be deceived that those who have wealth and possessions are, have received a blessing from God, the ones who have a lot. Because do you want to know what the Bible says? If some persist enough in their sin as a form of judgment, God will just hand them over to it. So Romans 1, 24 through 25, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. He just gave them up to it. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. I know that this probably makes you feel like, uh, I don't know, bad. <laughs> You're convicted. You're about to you know, melt before God. Some of you may be so convicted, but listen to me. Listen, Jesus is helping his disciples here and training them to live for the Lord and not the the world. And I just wanna do the same for you. Listen, if I can gather you all up and just say, live for the Lord and not for the world while you're here, it's gonna be over soon. Trust in him, follow him first. That's what we're trying to do here. He's instructing us in the powerlessness of possessions. So this pattern here, here's what he's doing. He's saying, don't prioritize this life. It doesn't make you rich. Life is about more. God will provide, verse 25, And here's another argument, okay? Don't trust in in the wealth. It can't make you rich before God. There's no life found in it. God will provide. And I got something else to tell you. Here's my second argument, disciples. This is a second argument, a separate one. It consists of verses 25 through 28. Pursuing greed is powerless. He says in verse 25, and here's another reason. We're in the next section right? Which of you, here's a question he says, which of you? It's a rhetorical question in the sense that he, he assumes the answer and he gives the answer himself, right? Which of you, verse 25, meaning none of you, I already know the answer, it's no one. Which of you, meaning his disciples, right? By being anxious, worrying, prioritizing, being concerned with, he says, about your life, Right. Which of you being anxious, anxious about what anxious about your life, which life, the life here on earth, because just up above in, above in verse 22, he said, don't be anxious about your life. So here he meaning the same things, which of you by being anxious about your life and the context is food and clothing. But there's more. Right. There's more than just food or clothing in, in mind here. Why? How do we know that? Because back in the previous scene, remember in the parable, there was a storehouse, there was inheritance, there was crops, there was barns, there was wealth. All of that applies. And he's saying, which of you, by being anxious, the word here in the Greek is to worry or to be concerned with, it's interesting, because the same word can be used about good things. Like, look at this, 1 Corinthians 12, 25, That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. There's the idea. You can be concerned, listen, you can be concerned with the right things, which is one another. That's what your life should be concerned with. Or Philippians 2, for I have no one like him who will genuinely be, here it is, concerned for your welfare. He was concerned about the churches, about the church. You can be concerned about the right things. But just like in Luke, Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, do not be anxious about anything. Those are the bad things, right? So Jesus says, who doing this can add a single hour to his span of life? Now, the single hour here, if you look at it, verse 25, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour? The idea here, a single hour, it says to his, his span of life. The idea here, the word is helikia, which refers to, it can refer to, it, it refers to a cubit, okay? Which of you, by being anxious about your life here on earth, can add a cubit, okay, to your life? That's the idea here, a cubit, which was a, which was a, uh, a, a measuring, a, a, a measured amount, right? Now, it can be referring to age, meaning years, like it's in John nine twenty one. Look at this. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He can speak to, for himself. That's the idea. It can, add, it can mean age, or it can also mean stature. Which of you can add a cubit? Years, it was used metaphorically as a, as a measuring of, of years, but also as of stature, literally cubits. Luke 19, three, for he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on the account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in, in what? Stature. So a cubit, it's a measure of length. It's literally the distance from your elbow to your fingertips, okay? That's what they, that's what they would say. But the measures of length were often used to provide periods of time. For example, like a hand breath. A hand breath was used in the same way, Psalm 39.5. "'Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, "'and my lifetime is as of nothing before you. "'Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath.'" So Jesus here, listen, may mean add a very short period of time to your life, or he may mean add 18 inches to your life. Now, I know that you think it's silly, if you were to say 18 inches. But, and many scholars think there's no way he's even referring to that. But can I tell you, I think it's ambiguous here on purpose. I think he's referring, I I think he left it that way on purpose, why? Don't discount height because it sounds silly, because it can refer to a larger truth, like more life, more power, more health, growth, stand taller, better life, more accomplished, pride in life. When you wish to be taller, don't lie, I know all of you do at some point. Sometimes I'm like, gosh, I wish I was that tall. What are you, what are you really wishing for? Right? More respect, more value, more identity, more power, more control. Or, as it's commonly interpreted and makes sense, cubit could be a metaphor for length, lengthening life, ensure longer life, treasure this life, so concerned with this life that you want this life to last and never go away. It's the opposite of what Paul says where he thought death was gain. When, Christ, when you're in the presence of Christ, you die, this life is over, he's like, get me there. Come, Lord Jesus, let this, let this happen fast. I wanna go to the next life. It's far better to be in the next life. It's the very opposite. You treasure this life. You don't want to lose this life. You want to save this life. The purpose of your life is this life. Mark 8, 34 through 36. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his his soul? Save this life here on earth. That's what he's saying. You'll lose your life, your eternal life. That's the idea here, right? Listen, you can't add time to your physical life. Now here's another reason, stay with me, why I think Jesus is alluding to both. Growth, height, stature, and length of life, span, years. Look at verses 27 through 28. Verse 27, consider the lilies and how they what? grow okay and then look at verse 28 but if god so clothes the grass which is what alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire what we're seeing here is jesus pointing to both growth and length of years right so he's saying possessions are powerless to do either right and so I think he's talking about both here. I can't add either. I can't do this. The rich fool in the previous section in the parable, he could not add one more moment to his span of life by accumulating possessions in the barn. He couldn't add anything. His life was required that night. When God summons the soul, the soul comes. It's you're pursuing possessions in your life as your main priority is powerless to do anything for your life except just give you a few more trinkets before, before you die. It's divine privilege to determine your lifespan. That's, that's what we can see here. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. God has predetermined the amount of days that you will live. Predetermined. Doesn't mean that you're reckless with them, Right? Just jump off some cliffs, cause God's gonna decide. Well, maybe God decided in the midst of you jumping off a cliff, right? That you will. Look, Psalm 139, 13 through 16, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. Not only my years, right? You formed my inward parts, you knitted me together. You know it very well. Here, look, verse 15. Also your frame. I think Jesus is referring to both, frame, stature, and years. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. So when I had zero days, you already predetermined my days, right? Right? And so, and, and the frame too, Psalm 39, four through six, oh Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breath, and my lifetime has nothing before you. So listen, some say, scholars say stature is the main point of this because uh, he says in the next verse, if you can't do such a small thing as this, why worry about other things? Meaning like you can't even add some height. But I think both again make sense. The point is this, Ready? Both of these things are very small things to God, creating someone's height, determining their length of life, but they're impossible for you to to affect, especially by gathering more possessions as if it's gonna extend your life here on earth. The possessions are powerless to save your life. They're, They're powerless. If you're concerned with this life, wealth, possessions, prioritizing this life rather than Christ and the gospel, life is about more and it cannot give you any more life. It can't give you any more life. So why in the world would you be concerned with them? Right, that's the argument here, that's the logic. If this life becomes your main priority and goal, and pursuing greed and prioritizing wealth and the abundance of possessions and safety and security and satisfaction in this life, and it can't even add more to your physical life, growth or years. Then why would you prioritize those things? Right? You only do this if you if you treasures your life if you treasure your life, and it can't even add to this life that you treasure so dearly. So it leads to our second point, which the second two are just easy. It's it's these verses aren't hard to figure out, right? Number two, then, the pointlessness of prioritizing possessions. The pointlessness. They're pointless, then, of prioritizing. Verse 26. Read it with me, okay? If then you are not able to do as a small thing as that, as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? So with the verses that we just talked about as the backdrop, this is not hard to figure out. If then... Again, remember Jewish argument, lesser to greater. If then you can't even do a small thing, which is not small to us. I mean, it's not small to God, but small to, or big to us, small to God, add years, add, add uh, meaning to your life. If you can't even do a small thing as that, which God can do easily. I mean, God determines that for every human being that's ever existed on the face of the planet or will ever exist. <laughs> I mean, it's just easy for him. If you can't do that, what, what are you, what, why are you so concerned about all the things that, that would contribute to that, that you would need to have to, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Here, the lesser to the greater. This is impossible to us. Namely, gain more years or physical stature in your life, both earthly, both fleshly, both dealing with this life. If you can't even extend this life, what are you doing worrying about all these things? The body, the food, the clothing, right? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. You might say, well, I'm not trying to extend my life, right? Well, I would rethink that. And it's clear that the treasuring and the trusting would be found in these things if that's what you're pursuing as your priority. Only thing that would actually matter if you treasure this life is to have more of it. And you can't do either with prioritizing possessions. He says, why are you anxious or worried or concerned? meaning material provisions, this is pointless, right? He drives this point home. He says, if you can't do such a tiny thing, why would you be anxious about other things? God will take care of your life. God will take care of your growth. All the needs to sustain your life, right? And through this whole thing, I wanna make mention to you. He's alluding here to, listen, just, Locke, and he's alluding here to the fact that material possessions will overcome your faith. Like, it's not just about the extension of your life, it's the fact that your life will be meaningless. It's the fact that your life will have no purpose. It's the fact that you will waste your life it will overcome your faith if you pursue possessions as your main priority. I mean, literally, it will distract really quickly. I was, this past weekend, I was, I was at the house and Saturday is always my uh, Sabbath day. So usually if you try to call, my phone's sitting on my nightstand and I won't look at it. I mean, all day I try the best I can. I mean, we just lay on the floor with blankets. So turn on movies, play games, um, do, do whatever I can I can to just rest my mind, right? And, uh, and I was in, in the midst of that, well, I, I don't know why, I'm laying with my kids on the floor and I'm thinking to myself, I really wish we could change this about our house. I really wish this, I, we gotta fix this. I mean, this over here is leaking, this over here thing is, right? I mean, I'm just thinking like, and that's, those, aren't a bad, those aren't bad in and of themselves, but you know what? When it began to consume my mind, I started to get irritable. And like two minutes earlier, I wasn't irritable, right? It distracts me from from what's important. It distracts me namely from the gospel, from God, from his glory, from investing in my children, from investing in, and this is the point here. It's not gonna extend your life. It's not gonna give you more life. The life that you treasure so dearly, it's still gonna be cut off when God decides and it's gonna distract you from your faith. So it accomplishes nothing. Number three then leads us into... For a few minutes, the importance of your life to God. Powerlessness of prioritizing possessions, therefore, it's pointlessness. And now, hear the importance of your life to God. Verse 27 and 28. Let's just read them. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? I mean, I know these verses are probably obvious to you. It's not hard to figure out what he's saying here, okay? But there's, there's stuff underneath here that's good for us to understand. Jesus again here is following with this pattern, remember? He's giving an idea he's, and then he's supporting it or strengthening it by real life example, that's what he's doing here. He says, consider this. And when he says consider, he's probably in the midst of the field and he's probably pointing to things. Like, consider the birds, right? Like, look at them, right? Consider these lilies, consider the grass. So he's probably just standing there. And first he appealed to the animal life, the birds, and now he's appearing, appealing to the plant life. You know, God's creation points to the reality of truths. And he's using here this plant life. He says, consider the lilies. And he's not referring to lilies in our sense of the term, but more generally, he's referring to flowers. He's referring to any blossoms of the region. Many scholars suggest, and I don't know these things, maybe you do, autumn car- uh, crocus or a turks cap lily or an anemone or a gladiolus or an iris or a martagon lily. The Song of Solomon uses this word that's used here in chapter five, verse 13. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet smelling herbs. His lips are lilies. It's referring to the color of the lips. So maybe Jesus is referring to some scarlet anemones, right? But the idea is it's interchangeable with just Flowers, just grass, because in the very next verse, verse 28, he switches from flowers to grass. He's just talking about plant life in general. First Peter, it says, All flesh is like grass and its glory, like the flower of the grass. It's just interchangeable here. He's using this term in the next in, in these verses to just point out something very uh, general. And specific at the same time, Jesus is referring in a general way to the flowers, but he's referring specifically to how they all grow. He says this in verse 27. Consider these flowers and how they grow. The term again referring to height. But what does height refer to? Their vitality, their strength, their health, their protection, their stature, their beauty, their strength. How do they grow? Here's what he says. Ready? Well, They're neither, they're not anxious. Verse 27, look, consider the lilies how they grow. They're not anxious about the things that will help them grow. It says they don't toil. You know what that word means, toil, right? It's, it's, it's It's a working, but it's combined with something else. It's a working combined with a worrying. It's an a laboring combined with an anxiousness. It's an effort combined with wearisomeness. It's becoming emotionally fatigued or discouraged. They don't toil in this way, worrying about their clothing, alluding to being anxious about this life. Luke 5, 5, look at this. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's the idea, right? Or you can be positive, because watch Revelation 2 3. I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. You can be toiling in a positive way for Him, or you can have this weary, anxious pursuit of providing for yourself as your life's goal. That's the idea here. He says they don't spin either, which means to make yarn, right? So he's alluding to clothing. So he did in the, first, in the first example, food, clothing, both. Now in this second argument, just clothing. And you'll see next week in this third argument, just food, right? He's taking them both separate. He said the birds work. Listen, he's anteing up this argument. The birds work. Flowers don't even do that. I'm going to show you how much I'll provide for you. Flowers, they can't do any work. Birds, at least, they're chirping, thinking they're doing something. The other day, I had so many birds in my backyard. I'm like, what are you all doing? And, and they're just picking stuff up that's already been provided for them. They work, but they're, they're kind of they are not doing anything, right? They're just giving. They're just picking up what's already there. The bird, the flowers—they can't even do anything. This is to to uh, uh, to show this point that God will provide for you. They don't manufacture cloth, right? But Jesus says this: I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory—he was gorgeous in robes—and not even Solomon was as glorious or best dressed as one of these. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 9. When the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the, the uh, attendance of his servants and their clothing, his cupbearers, their clothing, and the burnt offerings of the house of the Lord. Literally, the queen of Sheba lost her breath. There was no more breath in her. She's <laughs> like, gosh, you are dressed well. <laughs> and not even... Solomon was arrayed or clothed like one of these. And this is alluding to, you will be beautifully clothed before God. You will be exactly who he wants you to be in his sight. You will have exactly what you want. These flowers have no spiritual value whatsoever. And God takes care of them. I mean, think about a flower, the texture, the color, right? Right? And God in his own initiative clothes them, makes them perfect in his eyes. How much more will he do this for you? It points to God's perfect provision for those he loves when you prioritize the gospel and his glory and him primarily before anything else. Verse 28, I just gotta make mention of it and then we're done. He says the same thing. He continues this support, but he says this. If God, and he just calls it grass now, not flowers. Again, no specific um, plant here. Grass is commonly used to determine the brevi- to, to, to uh, show the brevity of life, like Psalm 37, too, for they will soon fade like the grass. He's alluding here back to the beginning of his argument. It can't extend your life. He's saying this: even grass, which has such a short life, right? You think that's important about how your, your length of your life? Well, let me tell you this. Even the grass, which has such a short life, tomorrow's, today's here, thrown into the oven, referring to the clay pots in Israel, that they would use dry grass and put it in there to, to heat up their clay, their clay ovens. Very temporary, right? It's very temporary, this grass. And yet, God still clothes it. So, how much more will he clothe you. The argument's irresistible. It's irresistible, right? You're need, it's needless to be anxious about these things. So he says one thing at the end that I just want to point out will be done. He says, "O oh, you of little faith. Apparently, maybe the disciples have shown anxiety in this area and had little faith. But can I just tell you this? Ready? Listen. If after hearing his words here, you continue in that form of anxiety about your life and priorities, you know what it shows about your life? That you have little faith. That's what it shows. You treasuring and trusting in this life, it shows your your faith is little. The issue is your faith. The, The disciples this began to sink in. Your faith is little, it's not mature. You have immature faith. If you can't pursue God, Christ, the glory of God, his gospel first, and trust God with your provisions, your faith is still a baby. It's still immature. That's what he's saying here. God is Jesus is always concerned about their faith, that they would trust him, only need him alone, and trust him, had his word alone. That's what strong faith looks like. You trust him in his word, no matter what, because you trust his word, you stand on it, You you believe it, you hold on to it, you know it's gonna be true, and you know that he is enough and only... And only him. God is dealing with their faith. God is dealing with your faith. If you continue to worry about these things, it shows that you have an immature faith, a little faith, not a strong faith, to pursue his kingdom first. This is his calling to them. So, church, don't be anxious about this life. Don't be anxious. It's pointless because your provisions are powerless. But God will ensure your growth, he will ensure your years. Have faith. Trust him and make him and his kingdom your priority. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and I just pray that you would help this to sink in. So much to say, just about a few verses. We need you though. We need you desperately. I pray that as we close out this service in a time of prayer for these things that you wouldn't let us be cold, but that you would help these things to sink in. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.